today on Ag News Daily. We're going to help be part of that progress moving forward for, for agriculture. So high level, what, what we're planning on, on doing and building out is working with the ethanol facilities throughout the Midwest. Um, the bulk of the footprint of this project is in Iowa. Good afternoon and happy Thursday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr flying solo today. Delaney is out doing some great things. I believe she is in Ohio, if I am remembering correctly, doing a speech over there. And then Dawson is actually at the Iowa State Fair. So I am all by my lonesome today, but that's all right. I'm going to go ahead and just kick off with some news here because I'm really excited about the interview that we have today to share. So I'm going to kick things off talking about the Pro Farmer Crop Tour. Scouts on the western leg of the tour set out Wednesday morning to check corn and soybean crops in western Iowa. Drought dominated headlines in western Iowa last year during day three of the Pro Farmer Crop Tour. And even as drought continues to be the talk of Iowa this year, fields in some portions of the state produced a different tone. In fact, scouts say that they may have found the, quote, garden spot in western Iowa measuring near record yields. Iowa corn data from the end of day three of the crop tour shows that the change from 2021 versus 2020 is up 0.9% in District 1. District 4 is up 16.6% and District 7 is up 4.2%. While in soybeans, the change in District 1 was up 75 District 4 up 4.1% and District 7 up 17.5%. So this potentially could be good news here. We're going to have to, of course, wait and see come harvest time what yields are actually looking like. But for now, I'm going to move on talking about some farmland in Iowa. The size of Iowa's crop this year is going to play a major part in the price buyers pay for Iowa land this year. And this is as real estate appraisers call the land market the hottest they've seen in 40 years. Jim Rothermich of Iowa Appraisal and Research says that the market has been intensely aggressive. After the first of the year, the market just exploded. My auction sale data indicates the markets have been up 25% from January 1st to June 30th. The average statewide price is $10,800, which is more than $2,000 from the same period last year. But who's buying this land? As Rothmich tracks not just sale prices and who's buying, he says the mix today includes about 50% of farmers and 50% investors. Traditionally, the mix is 25% investors and 75% farmers. So this is a little bit of a change up and different than things that we have traditionally seen in the past. Recent sales have even produced eye-popping prices. One recent sale raked in $19,000 an acre in Northwest Iowa. Rothermich says that details on that exact sale aren't publicly available yet, but there are other sales also cashing in at $18,500 in Marion County, for instance. In one week's time, farmland sold just in that county included 17 of the state average price right now. Some really interesting stuff going on. Um, there, the question remains on when will Iowa farmland values reach the top? And Brother Mitch says that everyone's guess as the factors fueling farmland values today are still at play. And he expects the farmland value bull to make another run this 
fall. So that's definitely something that we're going to be keeping our eyes out on, especially when it comes to strong commodity prices, what's going to play out come harvest time. So I think that there are quite a few interesting things at play in Iowa in particular, but also just across the heartland. I'm going to go ahead and kick things over talking about bird flu as Ivory Coast has identified an outbreak of the highly pathogenic H5N1 avian flu near the commercial capital and has taken steps to curb its spread. Testing confirms the presence of the virus after a large number of poultry started dying in the Grand Bassam commune on July 20th. Movement of poultry has been limited within the Grand Bassam area, which is about 42 kilometers or about 26 miles outside of the capital. Poultry imports from other infected countries have also been suspended. Birds have been culled in the vicinity of the outbreak without saying how many, however. But, I mean, we've been talking about bird flu a lot this year, quite a bit. So, I mean, this is just another one to uh, hit the news wires. Togo and Ghana culled thousands of birds after detecting cases back in June and July. Cases have also been detected across Africa earlier this year, so not so much good news, but definitely something that we're going to have to be paying attention to if this were to ever hop across the pond over into the U.S. Of course, that would not be good to see any foreign animal disease, but bringing things back over here domestically The U.S. EPA said yesterday that it's going to ban the use of food crops of the pesticide chloropyrifos, which has been linked to health problems in children. The decision is a victory for environmental activists who have fought to stop the use of this chemical that is applied to crops ranging from corn and soybeans to even Brussels sprouts and broccoli. EPA Administrator Michael Reagan said that the EPA is taking an overdue step to protect public health and ending the use of chlorpyrifos on food will help to ensure that children, farm workers, and all people are protected from the potentially dangerous consequences of this pesticide. It has been used as a pesticide since 1965 on farms and in non-ag areas such as golf courses. However, applications have declined due to state restrictions, reduced production, and the development of alternative products. EPA banned the use of chlorpyrifos in 2015 under President Obama after the agency decided it could not be certain whether exposure to the chemical in food and water would be harmful. But President Trump's EPA reversed the decision and said there was not enough evidence to link exposure to children's health issues. Just last year, California prohibited farmers from using these products and manufacturers from selling them due to health concerns. Also last year, Corteva said that it would stop producing chlorpyrifos because of declining sales. And we're seeing some some pushback from the industry. Agricultural Retailers Association President and CEO Darren Kopak says they are extremely disappointed in this decision. He was quoted as saying, this is an essential tool that there are very few alternatives for. And so this is going to tie the hands of growers who rely on this product to deliver bug-free produce to the grocery stores. The ARA is urging the agency to reconsider this decision. That's really all the news that I have here today, other than talking about the markets. 
Not so much good news today as there's red across the screen here in the grain markets. Starting out here in the corn contract, the September down 11 and three quarter cents to close at 550. The December down 14 and a quarter to close at 550 and three quarters. The soybean contract, September down 35 and a quarter cent to close at 13.23. The November down 33 and a quarter cent to close at 13.20. In spring wheat, the September down six cents to close at 9.17. The December down six and a half cents to close at 9.04 and a half. Heading over to livestock, again, red on the screen here, not such a hot day. Starting out things in live cattle, the October contract down 90 cents to close at 128.15. The December down 60 cents to close at 133.97 and a half. In feeder cattle, the September contract down 45 cents to close at 162.90. The October closing down 35 cents at 165.47 and a half. Lean hogs, same story here. The October down $2.17.5 to close at $86.92.5. The December down $1.57.5 to close at $80.55. The February down $1.25 to close at $83.22.5. Rounding out things with our class three dairy milk futures. Some good news here in the September contract as it's up four cents to close at 17.17. The October closing four cents higher at 17.16. With that, I'm going to kick it over to my conversation with Elizabeth Burns Thompson talking about the Heartland Greenway project. Live from the Iowa State Fair, I believe we have VP of Government and Public Affairs for Navigator Elizabeth Burns Thompson on. Elizabeth, it is Iowa State Fair that you're at right now, right? It is. I'm overlooking the Ferris wheel right now, trying to find a shady spot to stand. But yes, it's, it's a warm one out here. Well, some of the Ag News Daily team is there right now. And I've got to say, I'm a little bit jealous of you guys. I'm down here in Texas. I always love state fairs. Ours isn't until a little bit later in the fall. So I'm a little bit jealous that you guys get to get a taste of that right now. But we didn't come here to talk about the state fair, Elizabeth. We came here to talk about Heartland Greenway. So why don't you kick things off telling us a little bit more about this project? Absolutely. So um, we're really excited, and, and I want to thank you and your listeners again for having us on, or myself on at least. Um, it, we're, th this is kind of a, a broader piece of a, the, the broader pie of decarbonization of agriculture, right? Um, carbon is definitely the, the, the buzzword in, in our space right now, and so um, we're going to help be part of that progress moving forward for, for agriculture. So high level, what, what we're planning on, on doing and building out is working with the ethanol facilities throughout the Midwest. Um, a bulk of the footprint of this project is in Iowa, but um, throughout uh, Northwest Iowa, kind of the cross section of Iowa and up into a couple of our neighboring states as well, capturing that CO2 emission from those ethanol facilities, from those fertilizer plants, um, liquefying it on site and then putting it into a, a pipe system that will take it all the way to South Central Illinois, where it will go underground and be sequestered, um, you know, and, and pulling away from the, the carbon emissions that otherwise would have been. 
Gotcha. And I, I probably should have started things off talking a little bit more about Navigator, but have you guys done a project similar to this, or is this really the first project that we're seeing maybe from Navigator or just, you know, from the industry in general? Absolutely. So, so the, the concept of carbon sequestration is not, you know, entirely new. Doing it on the scale that has been proposed both with our project and, and some of the others throughout the, the corn and soybean belt is, is really novel and, and cutting edge um, for, for our industry, right? Um, the, the navigators, the kind of prior iterations of the company, they do have a, a framework and a background in building out infrastructure like this, different commodities obviously running through said pipes, but um, excited to take what we're very good at historically in terms of building out this infrastructure, applying it in a format um, here in the Midwest that's really good for the, the industries that we have here and can help benefit um, these, these value-added uh, biorefineries that we have all across the state. So, Elizabeth, I'm I'm reading the project overview right now, and it's the Heartland Greenway Carbon Capture and Sequestration system. And there's three stages of a successful CCS. So can you just go over those three stages with us? Absolutely. So so the, the three kind of big buckets of this would be the capture of the carbon itself, which would happen on site, um, the transportation of it. So moving it um, across the landscape and then obviously to the final, which would be step three, which is the sequestration site. In our case, we'll be in South Central Illinois. Um, those carbon capture uh, spots, we anticipate having uh, 20 to 30 at our first kind of um, first step into this. Uh, this project will obviously grow and have, you know, different iterations as, as the years move forward. But in our first kind of uh, stair step into it, we'll, we'll work with these, with these uh, refineries, put, help put this infrastructure on site there so that that carbon can be captured um, before it's emitted into the air liquefied, as I said before, and then um, be part of putting it into what is a good network of, uh, you know, steel pipe infrastructure that will then take it um, to its ultimate destination there at the sequestration site uh, deep underground there in, in South Central Illinois. So this is expected to kick off later this year in the of 2021, and I bet that's really exciting. But how long can we anticipate this project from kicking off to being in commercial operations? Absolutely. So as with anything um, that, you know, is, is of this scale of utility, um, there's a lot that goes into the, the siting of these specific lines and these specific projects. Um, and, and rightfully so, right? We want to be good uh, partners with the landowners that we'll be working with along the line, um, good partners with our, our customers that are part providing the CO2 and the infrastructure that needs to be built out for that. So, um, ultimately, uh, we'll be starting our, our process with the Iowa Utilities Board specifically um, for the state of Iowa here in the next couple of weeks. Um, that we anticipate to take um, well over a year in order to do all of the necessary checks and balances. I believe between 18 and 20 months, I think, is, is what we kind of have benchmarked. Um, and then additionally, another likely 18 to 20 months to look at from construction beyond that, right? So we, are, we anticipate the first project to actually come online or be connected late in 2024, um, we'll start we'll start building from the sequestration site and then out so that we can turn um, turn on or connect as many of the projects as quickly as possible so they can come online as we're building um, away from the, the ultimate site. Um, yeah, so kind of a, a rough framework of, of timeline. Um, we know it'll take some time, but we're excited about continuing to move forward. Elizabeth, I don't know if you're going to be able to kind of pinpoint something 
um, some, some goals for me, but if you guys had an ideal situation, you know, what are some goals that Navigator has in mind for this project? Um, some goals in mind. Um, I think obviously, uh, carbon, carbon is a buzzword and carbon is very prevalent in, in all conversation nags for a reason, right? Um, it, it's, it's really important that we start making progress or continue to make progress, right? A lot of our farmers across the countryside are, are making a lot of progress in terms of the on-farm decarbonization efforts, right? But when you're looking at how do you decarbonize agriculture as a whole, we need to look at both on-farm as well as off-farm. And so, um, ensuring that, you know, the agriculture community is, is kind of getting credit where credit's due. Um, that's important when you look at this project, right? Because biofuels are a cri- critical piece of the value proposition and, and value chain of the agriculture industry, right? We wouldn't have that but for the farmers and the farmer ingenuity that built these plants um, many, many years ago to begin with, right? So um, making sure that, you know, we're, we're, that value proposition is, is, is being looked at broadly and that agriculture as a whole is getting credit for, um, you know, decarbonizing both, you know, from, from the planter to the combine and then for the processes that happen after, which are things like what the customers that we'll be working with. I just have one more question for you, Elizabeth, and it's talking about the environmental impact because a project this big, and I'm looking at some of the the key points that are going to be made with environmental impact from this project, and it sounds pretty intense. So can we just talk about that for a second? Absolutely. Um, and, and carbon is, is a tricky one, right? Because you can't really see, feel, interact with it the way that, um, you know, we could see uh, other pieces of the environment, right? Um, it's hard to, it's hard to quantify, or I shouldn't say quantify because we can quantify it, but it's hard to interact or touch or feel, right? Uh, of a ton of carbon. Um, but, but what we can do is try to put some parameters or, or some rough estimates around what the impacts of that would be. If in, or I shouldn't say if in, but when this project comes to fruition, right? So to kind of to conceptualize what the impact that a project like this does in terms of the amount of carbon that we would be um, otherwise prevent, preventing from being limit, or emitted into the atmosphere, excuse me, um, is equivalent to about 2.6 million cars that would be taken off the road um, from an equivalency factor. Um, another way to look at it would be about 550 million trees being planted. Uh, which, which again, are, are figures and scales that are, that are hard for, for the layman, even myself, to be able to conceptualize what, what does something like that look like in scale. But I do think it gives us a, a good appreciation for just how big of an impact we can make um, with just our project, right? Um, and that's, that's looking at just from here and now, and that's not even thinking about what we can do going into the future as well. I think you put that into better words than I was attempting to do there, Elizabeth. (laughs) So I definitely appreciate having you on to talk about this with us. And I think it's, it's incredibly interesting and I'm excited to learn more and, and hear more about the kickoff once that does happen later this year. But for our audience members who might be interested to learn a little bit more, where can they find more information at? Absolutely. So, um, as, as with most, we've, we've got a website, navigatorco2.com. Um, I would encourage, I, I'll be out and about at a lot of the, the different farm shows and, and things like the state fair, like we're doing today. Um, so encourage, encourage people to, to give me a call. Um, additionally, you know, as I alluded to before, this is a very, um, 
user-focused type process, right? So we will be out in the communities talking to landowners, talking to the community leaders, um, really being an integral involved part of all of this. So um, you will continue to see and hear from us and we look forward to all of those conversations uh, moving forward. Well, Elizabeth, like I said, it was great to have you on today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day at the fair. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm off to find myself another happy Sunday. Thanks again there to Elizabeth for joining us live from the Iowa State Fair. Folks, if you're at the Iowa State Fair, go ahead and send us some pictures on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. We'd love to see what's going on. I'm a little bit jealous of those who are in attendance. But for those of you who aren't in attendance, you can use this time to catch up on the Ag News Daily podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and give us a good review while you're at it. We would sure appreciate it. But with that, I'm going to let the people go.